immense smokely intensity. Boy, I'm two sips in, <laughs> having trouble talking. Mark Graben and Jamie Flinchball are two guys drinking whiskey while chatting about lean ideas, experiences, and news. Let's hope they hold their liquor because they're not holding back on sharing their opinions. It's time for Lean Whiskey, Lean Talk with a Fun Spirit. All right. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode 18 of Lean Whiskey. I'm Mark Graben. I'm clearly indoors. Joining us yep. today, who is clearly outdoors, is Jamie Flinchball, uh, sitting out at my my favorite spot to enjoy whiskey. Which I thought, you know, whiskey's whiskey's about who you drink it with, as well as where you drink it. So I thought I'd I'd hit my favorite spot. Get a little porch sitting and sipping. Yep. Perfect. I'm in my can... office. Maybe I, I'll, I'll experiment with. Uh, maybe I'll sit outside next time. Yeah, it's, I mean, we probably shouldn't have a habit of drinking in the office, but, uh, <laughs> um, you know, with this, I can, I can continue to, instead of closing up shop in the office, I can continue to sit here on the porch and pour another glass after we're done. Yeah. At home office, clearly, you know, 4.20 in the afternoon in LA, normally I wouldn't be having a drink this early or in the office, but it's lean whiskey. So It's lean whiskey. You got to do what you got to do. So. Yeah. Well, before we get into the whiskey itself, which is always a big start, we wanted to uh, pay a little tribute. Um, uh, so a man we both know, Bill Hansen, uh, passed away last week. He uh, was one of the co-founders of the Leaders for Manufacturing program at MIT that we both both went to separate years, now called Leaders for Global Operations. Uh, so he was, he was VP of DEC, uh, I believe, when the program was founded. And then when he retired from DEC, he... Uh, came on staff and really represented industry in the uh, in the program. Um, Eighty years old and and really a great guy. Um, I have a lot of fond memories, but my my own story around him. Um, so I was always the first one in the office. I'd, I'd get up early, take the first bus on Mass Ave to the Red Line and the first train of the day in, and turn the lights on in the office and, and start a pot of coffee and. Uh, more than, more than an occasional occurrence, he and I would be the only ones in the office. He'd be the first staff member to arrive and, and I ended up in his office, uh, chatting away, um, talking about all kinds of stuff, just whatever, uh, whatever we felt like, but, uh, really was a tremendous mentor in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I, I can remember, you know, I, I still picture going in Bill's office was, um, Next, if I'm remembering this right, next to Don Rosenfeld's office. So, and yes, the other co directors and Don, uh, we lost Don too soon, um, about a year or two, year, two years ago. I want to say two, but I just can't um, remember. But, you know, the structure of the program had, um, you know, representatives from engineering school, business school, and industry. And, like you said, Bill Hansen had a, a very accomplished career. And, you know, I, I really admired, um, Bill and that experience that he brought in. And, you know, there, there were times where I certainly took him up on his open door policy and um, having conversations about what I thought, you know, a career, at least first steps coming out of MIT could and should be and, and what types of organizations I was going to try to find. So I just remember him being a very welcoming um, 
friendly presence who you, you could tell was, uh, you know, really invested in his students. This wasn't just a job to keep busy, that there was a real commitment there. There really was. And, and, and that commitment continued after, you know, after you left. Um, I had actually formed when I graduated a personal advisory board. It was kind of a, a semi-structured way to hold myself accountable for uh, engaging with people I thought were very helpful for me thinking about my career. And, and I honestly don't remember if, if it was uh, Bill's idea or uh, he was simply the first member of it, but he, he was the first member of it for sure. And uh, I engaged with him regularly after our graduation oh, for several right. years. So um, he really believed in what we call the big L of, of leadership. Uh, you know, not just how to lead a team of people, but how to leave a legacy and uh, have a purpose and things like that. He really did believe those things. So, so we'll toast our friend Bill and uh, move on to whiskey. Yes. I have our, uh, have our sip here. And um, as strange as having a sip, I decided to talk about having a sip. There'll be time for more sips while um, Jamie's talking. So our, our theme today, um, we are on scotch. And more specifically, we are in the Isla region is what we um, are both drinking today. So um, we, we did an episode on, uh, on Speyside previously, yep. right? Yep. Yeah, and so I, I think, you know, what's interesting about scotch, I think even more than bourbon and other whiskeys, is the combination of the variation from, from distiller to distiller, but then also region to region, more, uh, slightly broad, more broadly. And, and there's no question that, that this region has, has a bit of a style to it. Um, you know, certainly, you know, with some peat and other things, uh, but... Each one's different, but you can, you can, I probably could blindfold taste one from, from this region and, uh, uh, because it, it has its own style. Yeah. There's that PD style. Um, you can get fooled. Like I had an opportunity to tour, as we talked about before the space side region, and occasionally you will find a peated space side, um, whiskey. So sure. you can get, um, crossed up and I don't know off the top of my head. Is there anyone... So this is where you have a, a podcast where we're not whiskey world experts. There, there's got to be someone in the Isla region who's being a contrarian and not using peat. I uh, probably, although they might get run off um, <laughs> as as they take some of that pretty seriously. But um, yeah, I think we chose. I forget if this is why we chose Speyside, but but you had visited and and toured, and I've. I've been to Scotland, but always for work, and I never really got to got to tour, uh, which is a, a shame. Yeah. Um, but you haven't been to Islay. I have not, and um, yeah, we we did. Uh, my wife and I did Speyside region on uh, my fortieth birthday, and um, it had been my plan, uh, you know, for a fiftieth birthday to go back and and maybe instead of Edinburgh, spend time. Um, uh, in um, Glasgow and uh, closer to the Isla region, which is a lot harder to get to. I think uh, mm-hmm. boats, a boat is involved um, yes. right on the coast. And so 
I can only hope that um, things get back to some semblance of normal um, where I can still do that in uh, late 2023. So put that up on the goals, the goals board. But if we can't go and visit, at least we can, uh, we can sample what's shipped over here from that region. That's right. I mean, there, there, there are a lot of uh, highly established brands um, in, in that region. Um, and uh, yeah, I think, I think Talisker was to some, for some reason was sort of a gateway for me from, you know, having a couple uh, Balvenies and, and a couple of different, you know, simpler uh, yeah, scotches. Bal- Balvenie space side. Right. Right. And so some, some softer, I'll say mm-hmm. uh, scotches. And, and I think Talisker was sort of my gateway to, to, to a broader world of, of scotch. And, and that's what got me interested, I think, in trying all sorts of different things. So I drank Talisker as a, uh, regularly for, for quite a while, but now it's not even any on my shelf because I have so many other fun yeah. things to try. Yeah. yeah uh, Talisker comes to mind. Um, Lafroig, Lagavulin. And um, the, the other that would come to mind, this is one I'm actually um, drinking today, is uh, from the Ardbeg Distillery. Um, this is their, uh, their 10-year Isla single malt um, scotch. And, and the one thing that's interesting about Ardbeg is that they have, they've got many, many expressions. Yep. Um, a lot of them have names that are very uh, Gallic or uh, Scottish bit of a challenge to uh, pronounce Ardbeg rolls off the tongue right pretty easily but um so this is their, their 10-year whiskey um kind of typical peated you know on the bottle here it says are you getting uh sea spray i don't know what terry rope is but you know intense smoky immense smokely intensity boy i'm two sips in <laughs> having trouble talking immense smoky intensity. So, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's, uh, you know, the, the, that region is certainly known for the peatiness. And for those who are watching on the YouTube, you know, I'll hold my glass up. And I think this is often surprising to people that you would, you would have an impression that a peated smoked barley whiskey would somehow be darker in color. And that that's not true. The smoke drying of the malted barley isn't adding color. It's the, right. the, the barrels. Right. And so this is a fairly lightly colored. You, you wouldn't, you can't tell by looking at it. You put your nose anywhere near the glass and it's, you know, it's polarizing. My wife just, she doesn't care for peated whiskey. That's just a, a palate preference. Yeah. And that, that's definitely, everybody's got to find their, their preference. And, and Pete um, is, is in my rotation, but it isn't, you know, I, I like it. I don't uh, seek it, but for some it's, it's an absolute no. Um, and, and I have, I, I have to admit, I, I only tried Ardbeg for the first time maybe two years ago. Mm-hmm. And I have a, a really interesting bottle right now. And, and it's one of those, I don't have it with me on the porch, but it's... Those funky names. It's one of those funky names that I, I even before, the, before our show here, I looked at and said, can I remember how to pronounce this? Um, I'm not even sure how, if I know how to pronounce it while looking at it, let alone right. otherwise. Right. But it is, it is fantastic. Uh, I really enjoy Ardbeg. Um, and I'll, I'll, I'll be seeking out other, other varieties of theirs. So, yeah. And before we talk about yours, I was just going to add one interesting bit of trivia about Ardbeg. 
actually was uh, out with a friend of mine. I was in uh, Phoenix for work and we went out to have a drink and Ardbeg had a promotional like semi-truck trailer out in the parking lot of this whiskey bar that we had gone to. And on the inside, they had this little mini museum display of what they basically called their space whiskey. And there was a vial and uh, they, they sent a vial of whiskey to the International Space Station in 2011. I, I think it was up there for a couple of years and like an honest to goodness scientific experiment of how weightlessness would somehow change the whiskey. And, I, and my, my belief is, you know, they're, they're going to take whatever volume of whiskey that was and put, put a drop in a bunch of different bottles and sell it as um, the space whiskey. Maybe that's an unfair accusation, but no, I wouldn't be surprised. But I, I, I think if you really want to test that it's, you know, you got to send a barrel up and it's, it's got to age, right? Mm-hmm. It can't just be a, a vial that's nothing's going to happen to it. So it's, um, and interestingly, you know, uh, we talk about temperature variation while aging and the barrel does, you know, this, this ebb and flow in and out of the whiskey and um, while space, the temperature changes a lot, I'd imagine inside the International Space Station, it's pretty temperature controlled. So not sure that's a useful experiment either. No. <laughs> but, you know, why not, right? Somebody's got somebody's to be the first whiskey to space. So, so uh, what, what are you, you're, are you, you're having a Talisker, you mentioned. No. <laughs> no, no, I'm having, so I'm having Lagavulin. Um, so the 16. Um, which, which to me, uh, is is a a really good year for for Lagavulin. I think, you know, there's certain whiskeys where you keep going up in age and it, it gets worse. Uh, others where it plateaus, but of course the price doesn't plateau. It just keeps, <laughs> keeps shooting up. Yeah. Um, I, I think 16 is a sweet spot for this particular whiskey. It's not wildly expensive. It's really, uh, you know, sort of broad and complex. Um, it's got, you know, a great nose on it. Um, I'm not, I've, I've always been bad at tasting notes, but I, I can tell you what I like. Now this is a darker color, but again, as you said, not, not because of the peat. In fact, uh, they actually argue that the, because the waters rush through the peat bogs that the, the water that they distill with is already peated water. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so it, it's, uh, yeah, it's not not about adding peat to the whiskey. It's it's simply what it does from from the smoking, from the water, from other other factors. But this is definitely if you're a, a and I'll say an amateur because we're all amateurs. But uh, uh, if you're an early whiskey drinker, it's unlikely this will be your uh, your glass. Um, it, it's definitely definitely got a bit of peat monster to it. Um, uh, but like I said, it's not, it's not harsh. You know, Lafroig is, Lafroig can be harsh. You know, that can be just, you know, a hammer to the face, but, but this it's, I don't think it's harsh. It's just strong in the, in the taste, but it still has a lot of different, uh, flavors to it. A lot of complexity and, and a pretty long finish, which I like as well. And, and now a word from our sponsor, Lafroig. Oh, nope. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I haven't had Lafroig for a while. Right? <laughs> Pete and I, I did like Lafroig for a while. So as, I, as I was exploring Pete, I mean, you, you got to go down the, the pathway of Lafroig. Um, but I, I think to a degree, it's, uh, 
hey, if you like peak, then more is better. And it seems to be a bit of the Lafroig style, which again, for somebody that loves peat, that's great. If you think it's a, a variable that adds complexity and differences, then probably not your whiskey either. Yeah, there, there's one that I've, I've had. I, I had a bottle years ago. They do different releases. Uh, the Brooklotti Distillery does one called Octomore, which is by like they measure the, the, the peat concentration in parts per million and scientifically mm-hmm. measured it as the most heavily peated whiskey in the world. And, and they call that, you know, it's for bragging rights and, and marketing. And yeah, it's interesting, but I'm not going to sip that every day. Right, right. And 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 the, the Lagavulin, I'm not going to uh, probably go to every day. But, but interestingly, it's probably been uh, the most consistently bought, uh, uh, shelved bottle for me over the last three to four years. Um, and it's, and specifically the 16, um, it's, it's been rare that I don't have a bottle. I don't go through it super fast, but when I do, and, um, you know, batch ordering or buying a, a, a set of, of whiskeys, um, be sure I'll probably pick another one up. So. Cool. All right. Well, cheers. To cheers. To our friends in the Isla region. I hope to get there someday. Me too. You're lucky. Your your wife will uh, taste whiskey with you. Mine, mine will not. So it makes a trip, uh, yeah, quite unlikely, at least for the two of us. So we're uh, as always. We're going to go from whiskey to news, um, and there's of course plenty of news out there um, I, uh, to uh, to speak of, but. Uh, uh, before we get into our selected topic, you actually have some some interesting news about your blog. Well, well, thanks. Yeah, we're we're going to talk about an article that Jamie found, but Jamie also suggested. Thank you for this. Um, mentioning um, kind of you know a special week on um, <clears throat> on leanblog.org. Um, starting uh, on Friday, I'm going to have a blog post introducing the series, but. Um, you know, sometimes uh, brands do what's called a, a social media takeover where some consumer brand or, you know, some, some with a lot of followers, um, you know, hands over the social media feed to uh, a cause, um, you know, give, give exposure. And um, I, I had this idea sort of come to me, I'm calling it a blog handover because takeover sounds forced, right? So I'm, I'm handing over the blog to um, DeAndre Wardell, who I, I was familiar with on LinkedIn. We were connected. She's in Indianapolis. And I'd seen her postings about Lean. But now, you know, in recent months, I think going back to June is when we started really talking about this. She had made some posts, which can be brave to do on um, LinkedIn, you know, sharing some very personal reflections from her standpoint as a black woman, how she felt professionally and personally, you know, in these times where we have um, the deaths, the murders of um, George Floyd and uh, Ahmaud Aubrey and, uh, and others, um, it's, it's such a long list. So um, Breonna Taylor and, and anyway, you know, a long, long list and, and her thoughts on that. And some of the reaction from, from some people on LinkedIn was um, unfortunate to see. Um, other middle-aged white men like me being, you know, I think kind of, you know, dismissive mm-hmm. of 
her experiences. And so I think in terms of lean thinking, we're supposed to respect people and that means listening and understanding their perspectives, right? So let me bring it back to workplace for a minute. You know, Jamie, if you're running manufacturing operations somewhere and um, somebody comes to your office, if they could catch you there, but let's say they caught you in your office and somebody came in and, and it was wanting to tell you about a safety problem on the shop floor. I know you wouldn't sit there and just be dismissive and say, no, it's not unsafe. Right. You listen, you, you hear somebody's experience and uh, uh, you investigate uh, objectively and, and uh, solve what you can uh, as aggressively as you can. It's the, the natural reaction you should have when there's a problem. Yeah. So, you know, in the spirit of the blog um, handover was, um, you know, for one, I came, I came to um, DeAndre with a, this idea, would you like to take over the blog uh, for a week and you can write whatever you like about lean or otherwise, and, and maybe you know others. Well, she took this idea and ran with it. Um, she's she recruited, um, I, I think the count is like 15 or 16 authors, all women, um, uh, some white women, some black women writing about to different degrees and different um, combinations of topics that, that are sometimes incorporating continuous improvement and issues um, involving um, race and equity and inclusion. Um, but, you know, so the spirit of a blog handover is, hey, it's your blog um, and I want to hear different perspectives and voices. So uh, it's part of my attempt to maybe better understand the current condition, if you will. I mean, it's been a longstanding condition. Um, because, you know, I think kind of understanding the problem and, and having discussions about that is the first step toward figuring out what comes next. So I'm very appreciative of, of Deandra and the others who um, have come forward to write. Um, we're going to do a panel webinar discussion that Kinexus um, is hosting on, on Friday the 14th. On Friday. Yep. And we're going to have nine of us, um, nine, nine women, and then I'll be moderating. So my, my role will be really just to facilitate <laughs> that discussion because my, you know, and let them, and let them uh, share their perspectives. But then the, the one other thing I'm contributing this next week uh, is a, a podcast in my lean blog interview series where I'd reached out uh, to Randall Pinkett and there's an MIT connection and there's a Jamie connection that I, I know you'll speak to, but um, Randall Pinkett among other things was the first black winner of the apprentice with yep. uh, Donald Trump's, uh, show, and um, he's 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 you know got five degrees, including a PhD from MIT. Um, he he wasn't done after the uh, leaders leaders for manufacturing <laughs> program degrees. No, he 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 doubled down. He, he he's an yeah. impressive mind. Yes, and um, so I reached out to Randall, say, hey, could we do a podcast um, about uh, you know about, about these issues? And and he brought in uh, Professor Jeffrey Robinson from. Uh, uh, Rutgers Business School, and they co-authored a book um, some years ago called uh, Black Faces in White Places. Um, they're working on a new book called Black Faces in High Places, and so that um, podcast um, is, is something I'm going to release as well um, next week, and, and, and I got a story. I don't know if this is a, it's a new story related to um, The Apprentice that may, he, he probably hasn't told anywhere else about rewatching the series with his daughter who wasn't even born yet. Right. When he was on the show. Yep. That's a bit of a teaser for that podcast. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot, a lot of serious issues and uh, to discuss there. So I appreciate them making time for the podcast.
Yeah, I, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, so just speaking to Randy, uh, you know, he's, um, he was a classmate of mine at MIT, and uh, I remember, um, you know, we had, we had watched some of The Apprentice, and, and, you know, it seemed like a bit of just, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, backhanded um, gamemanship for the reality TV show, and, and uh, you know, get lucky and, you know, go big when you need to, and press the right people. And when Randy was on the show, I remember thinking, he's both too smart and too nice a guy to win. Um, cause it really didn't seem like, you know, being, being such a nice guy was a good thing on that particular show. And, and he really is a fantastically nice guy. So, um, yeah, it's, it's good. Um, good to see his opportunity to speak out. I know he has been for, for years, Mm-hmm. Uh, it's been a strong voice uh, in, in lots of communities, but in many times uh, speaking to the black community and, and uh, um, you know, a lot of us, I think, have learned quite a bit this year about our role in, in not just listening, but speaking um, and engaging. So, um, so I think that, I think this, this, this week of, of root cause racism will be really interesting. Um, you know, like any complex problem, there's no single root cause. You, sure. you have to break down systems and redesign work and understand culture and, you know, really, really uh, complex things. Uh, there's no magic wand. Uh, there's no single cure. And so I do think that while I, I'm not predicting that lean will end racism, I, I think it can solve parts of it in ways, in unique ways, in ways that the thought process that Lean brings uh, can perhaps enlighten uh, new solutions. And so I'm hopeful to see the uh, the momentum built out of this uh, this blog takeover, and I'll certainly be tuning in to see see what, what comes of it. Yeah, well, thank you. And I, I would invite listeners to um, check that out. And as you mentioned, Jamie, um, yeah, DeAndra came up with a, a theme of, of hashtag root cause racism. So um, that's the theme uh, for the blog posts. Um, DeAndra's posting hers on Saturday, August 8th, which is a date that's meaningful to her. And um, uh, she, she's going to share why that is in that first blog post. We're going to have blog posts on the weekends, multiple blog posts a day, which is yep. a bit unusual, but I'm really happy to have all that participation and um, to hear what they have to say. Yeah, great program. Uh, looking forward to seeing seeing all the the collected voices there. So, so thank you for um, wanting to talk about that here. Um, so now Jamie found an article or some articles, but a theme. Um, let you go ahead and introduce that. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> really, starting from from the beginning of of the the thought process is you know, with everybody working from home, dealing with sort of the chaos at work and, and everything else, um, I, numerous times I've had conversations with executives where they are in, they are in video meetings uh, 10, 12 hours a day. Um, and then, you know, try and catch up on email. Fortunately, so many people are in all of these video meetings, they don't have time for generating email that you have to <laughs> respond to. So, Unless they're doing the dreaded multitasking thing. Well, and, you know, there's a ton of that, right? Which means every meeting is less effective uh, and longer than it needs to be. And, um, you know, I even had a conversation today with someone who says, yeah, I'm supposed to be in another discussion right now, so whenever <laughs> we're done, I'll join that. 
And, and, and essentially, I, while a lot is being learned, not enough is being learned about how to work remotely. And, and I think if you, if you stop and think about just working remotely temporarily, and you either think about it as working remotely permanently, not that we plan to, or that we think about redesigning work based on what we're learning, then you get to this idea of learning more about asynchronous work, um, where not everything has to happen while everybody being in the same place at the same time and work together. And that's what, that's what these series of articles are about. Um, and, and I've been doing, you know, I'll share some of this, but I've been doing a lot of this for, for years, uh, not always well, but certainly uh, got to, for, for, for reasons, got to delve into asynchronous work uh, quite early in the opportunities to do so. Yeah, and the, and the one article, and we'll, of course, is always linked to this in the show notes. Um, the one article Jamie brought to the table here was from Forbes.com. Uh, what if working from home could be different to how it's been till now? And they talk about the company Automatic, which creates WordPress software, which I use quite a bit. I think mm-hmm. your website. Uh, yep, mine as well. Is, uh, is WordPress. And uh, Matt Mullenweg, the founder, talks about five levels of um, autonomy. In, um, there, and, and so I think getting to level five nirvana, you know, he describes it as consistently perform better than any in-person organization could. So, you know, I'm wearing my Kinexus hat tonight, um, you know, uh, talking to the co-founders, um, Greg Jacobson and Matt Palulis, you know, they had reflected that they thought the company, now that it's a completely virtual company uh, at this point, you know, I think they ballparked it at about 95, it's 90%. 85, 90, just picking numbers, right? Yeah. Almost as effective as being in the office. But then I think it's interesting that um, Mullenweg raises the challenge of, of no, we, we should actually try to be more effective. Or at least yeah. As possible. And I, I think that's the, the question. I have a, a video coming up. Uh, it, it's basically called uh, Delay, uh, Modify, or... Um, or redesign and and basically for for things that have been delayed because of covid well you have to make a decision do i just continue to delay do i modify it just to get as much a highest percentage as possible of the regular value or do i redesign it to get more than i did before and and i'm seeing uh, with with a lot of work that that's what we should learn um i i i was talking to somebody very recently, I think it was Monday, um, they said, yeah, our daily huddles, uh, the team on the floor takes a photo of the board. We talk about it. We go through our, our daily huddle remotely and, um, and it's more focused and it's better than it's ever been. And, and, and th- th- then it was, but what happens when we go back, right? What do we just go back to where we were before or can we learn from this and make it you know, better still. Um, and, uh, and I think, so I'm, I'm working on, I'm working on client servicing, uh, engagement, uh, strategies that where I'm, I'm trying to design, you know, sort of workshops that, uh, aren't just, they're, they're not even meant to accommodate remote because of COVID. They're meant to solve the problems that exist with in-person workshops 
and do it better than before. And I think that's, yeah. I, I think once you get into looking at the day-to-day work, I think it's the only approach is to think about how to make it even better. And, and, and the, the key point of the asynchronous is that not all work is best done synchronously. And I think it's an opportunity. Like, I mean, we think about automation and we, we always say, don't automate the waste. Don't, don't just digitize what's being done now. Let's reinvent it. Right. So the first phase of, let's say, you know, virtual conferences, which are happening now, um, uh, on Tuesday, uh, the, the Shingo Institute ran something they call a virtual experience. I think it was a bit of a dry run in different ways because in October, they're going to do a virtual conference across two days. Right. And so they invited me to speak and, you know, they had 30 minute talks um, with 15 minutes in between, but it was pretty much a conference format, but we were all on zoom and all on there synchronously. And so I'm not trying to be critical of them, but I think it's interesting to rethink now, um, you know, this challenge of like, well, if we had each recorded our presentations um, and, and they had been sent out to people and everyone was told basically, look, you've got five days to carve out the time to watch this six hours worth of presentation. And then we're going to get together on Friday for virtual discussions like that. That's a different type of experience. And it'd be interesting or maybe we can experiment with that instead of just <laughs> thinking out loud about it. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm trying to do, you know, two or three or 10 experiments every single week. Um, and with the kind of things that, that, you know, you and I often do. Um, I did a, 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 a talk with some students at Lehigh University uh, last week where uh, rather than just do the standard uh, get up and talk for a while and then uh, take a few questions of whoever's bold enough to speak at that point, I had them actually on a, on a Miro board, which is my current preferred tool. While I'm speaking, they captured insights in one all, all of them simultaneously capturing insights and capturing questions. Mm. And then they voted on each other's stuff. And then that's the stuff that I reacted to at the end. And it was still in that, I mean, we still had uh, a synchronous meeting, but we had asynchronous work going on in the background. Yeah. Um, and, and I, you know, I used to run a consulting firm, which we had people in uh, three continents and four time zones. Um, and, and we very rarely had to have, you know, meetings because we, we mastered, you know, the communication. I don't say we mastered. That's just wrong. We, uh, we really strive towards <laughs> uh, asynchronous communication and systems of work that allowed us to, to be clear about when help was needed, what we're working on, uh, our, our productivity, our, our priorities, and all of those things. And then, you know, when it became pretty clear when a meeting would be needed as the exception to the work rather than the primary purpose of doing the work. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think it's interesting to step back and think, all right, what is the work and um, how can we accomplish it differently? So I'm thinking again about Kinexus. We do twice a year team meetings. Um, you know, teams grown to about 20 people now. And so, you know, everyone would come to Austin. So there's a Dallas office. 
there's me, there's a couple other people who are remote virtual employees. We'd all get together in Austin and come into the office and each function and different people within the different functions would basically give PowerPoint presentations to everybody in the room. Yeah. And there would be some discussion, but then, oh, well, we're falling behind schedule, so we don't have time for that. We that's So it ends up being a lot of PowerPoint. Now, it's great to see people face-to-face, and we, we have meals and go out and do social things, and that's great. But for a while, I've been sort of banging the drum, suggesting, all right, the PowerPoint updates, just send those out, let people read them. Mm-hmm. Or to this idea that's come up from the articles you sent out of, doing it asynchronously. If you're going to spend the time presenting, present and record it through Zoom by yourself, blast it out to people and tell people, carve out time in your calendar because that's probably the biggest risk, right? When we're all in the office, it's captive audience, even though there might be multitasking. All right, people have to listen. But we're adults. We can be professionals and say, okay, we're going to watch those updates. Now let's get together in person maybe for two days instead of three. We'd save travel expense. And we can spend those days doing nothing but discussions and team building activities and things that really take advantage of um, being there. So recently, a couple of weeks ago, we did one of these as a virtual meeting. And again, it was very synchronous. So it'd be interesting, like later this year or in January, if we're still doing it that way, I'll, I'll, I'll talk to Greg and Matt, like, let, let's experiment with trying to make it more of an asynchronous meeting. And let's use that time together for the magic that comes out of much more interactive discussions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I, I think um, those types of, those types of designs make a big difference when you really think about what's the best format to convey information. What's the best format to collect your thoughts. What's the best format to ask questions. What's the best, uh, format to create, right? And so, you know, just about every board of directors I've been on started with going into a board meeting, going through a standard deck. Every board meeting, here's the here's the quarterly performance report, and and we'd ask questions based on, you know, we'll ask question based on slide two, but all the meets on slide ten, and yeah. but but you know, we're on slide two, so you ask a question, mm-hmm. and and then you get distracted for thirty minutes, and. And so if you can digest information, consider it, formulate thoughts around questions, prioritize those questions, and then have a dialogue, it's a much better way to get use of time where we put people together. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, you know, I look at examples where uh, people, people forced a better way of working um, I, when they still thought they had to be synchronous. So uh, one of my favorite examples of this is Jeff Bezos, um, whose you know, name is dragged through the mud for a lot of his personal decisions, um, rightly so. Um, but what he, instead of PowerPoint presentations and, and people coming in with a deck and pitching, they had memos and they, they would sit in a circle at the meeting and say, okay, everybody read it. Yeah. Everybody would stop and they would read quietly, make notes in the margins, whatever. Okay, now you've considered the information, now have a discussion. And he, he really, I mean, again, he probably didn't have, maybe he did, but shouldn't have to have, a, you know, have that time carved out of the meeting. But the key idea is, uh, you know, first consider the information, then discuss it. 
don't try to do both at the same time. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that when, when we are trying to discuss it all the time, then certain other things like prioritization and consideration and reflection, uh, get, you know, brushed under the rug a bit and, and not quite as effective. Yeah. And then, you know, we talk about effectiveness, um, you know, in this world of remote work, um, one of the articles you shared talked about you know, this idea of, you know, digital monitoring, which just makes me cringe. Um, you know, kind of, are you really measuring someone's productivity in terms of how many keystrokes per hour they're putting into their computer? Maybe for certain jobs that matters, but it's, it's much easier to measure uh, activity than it is to measure um, outcomes. Um, so you think about, you know, um, results-based workplaces or, you know, different buzzwords or phrases that are used. Um, I would really hate to work for an environment, uh, for an organization where, where the environment was one where there's so little trust of like, oh, they're, they're taking a random screenshot of what I'm doing every five minutes or, you know, that kind of active monitoring that, that that's, uh, Oh, yeah, yeah, I wouldn't want to be part of that. Not because I don't want people to see my screen, but I'm like, wow, like, do you trust me to be an adult professional? So there was one quote in the article that said, um, this is the end of the culture of presenteeism and micromanagement. And I would add, I, I would only hope so. Yeah. And I, and I doubt it is. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I, and I think there's some parts of work or certain types of work where that's probably just necessary where there's, there is no inherent redeeming value in the work and, and uh, you know, measurement is out, output. Output equals outcomes and they're the same things. And so when the work is narrow enough that that's true, that out, output equals outcomes, then, you know, you can put metrics in place for that and there's nothing, nothing wrong with that. Um, but, but I think I, you know, when you, when you get clear about outcomes, which really means, you know, working on the right stuff and producing results, um, then if you get smarter about measuring that or evaluating that at least, yeah. um, and, and this is even true for ourselves, then, uh, then, then who cares about the hours it took? In fact, the hours are irrelevant. So I, I did a, a, a video recently on, on a personal waste walk just for fun, uh, my morning routine. And, and most of them were really sort of stupid, silly, simple two seconds savings, which, which are fine, right? Nothing wrong with that at all. But, but I'll tell you that one of them was kind of game changing for me. And that is that every morning when I open up my computer, I first look at my calendar. I then look at my priority list. And then I look at my inbox only, only then do I look at my inbox. And, uh, you know, I used to have 15 tabs open. Now I typically have three or four and, and it, by, by making sure I'm clear before I touch my inbox about what's important. Um, I am absolutely getting more outcome from my work and, uh, I don't know how to measure it other than the fact that, uh, fewer things get pushed on the calendar. Fewer important priorities get pushed on the calendar. And I, I've never tracked it, but it's not hard to observe. You can see yourself doing it. It seems like a good habit, a good practice. Well, and I mentioned my, my old company where we had a team. We had 
this is before a lot of the technologies like Trello that we use that I use a, a lot today. Uh, we've, we've used Trello. I've used Trello for years, but um, we had a wiki. It was the, that was the tool of choice at the time. And everybody every week would write a list of their priorities for the week. And the standard was if you're, if you, your priority for this week was a carryover from last week, you just highlighted it in red. That was it. You didn't, you didn't beat yourself up. You didn't have to present a, a, a resolution plan. You just needed to highlight it in red that this priority for this week happened to be one from last week. And it, it just added to the transparency to yourself and to everybody else. And if help was needed, you could have that conversation. And that's when the phone call would start. But, but uh, just a simple way to manage the work without ever having to have a meeting to review, did you get your work done, which is just not productive. So we've got, um, are you going to put links to all three of the articles? Kind of I'll, I'll put, yeah, I'll put links to all three. Um, uh, and I, I think I'll also put a link to the, was interesting is the, uh, um, the WordPress, uh, didn't he write an article, a book called, uh, the year with no pants? Um, Scott Burkun, how do you say it? Burkun, Burkun. Yeah. But it was, it was about his, you know, his shift to this asynchronous work. So, uh, the cover of the book is a picture of underwear, which is <laughs> probably super, uh, appropriate for these days of work from home. But, uh, well, I'm wearing, I'm wearing uh, workout shorts because I went out for a walk earlier and I, I didn't change. I'm doing lean whiskey. And so it doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah, I am wearing shorts, but that's, uh, it's, yeah. it's summer. I'm on the, I'm on the porch and I'm drinking whiskey. So I'm not, I'm perfectly okay with that. Um, uh, uh, Scott Birkin also wrote uh, a really entertaining, insightful book called confessions of a public speaker. Mm. I highly recommend for anybody who does any amount of speaking. Um, I remember I probably read that eight or 10 years ago, even. Yeah. It's been around a while. Entertaining stuff. So all right, so know your work, know what parts of your work matter, redesign your work, and don't just accept end-to-end uh, uh, -end meetings because we don't know what else to do. Yeah. Um, we can do better. And, and, and try to be asynchronous. So doing show notes and prep for a podcast in Google Docs is a good example of asynchronous work. Yeah, we, we don't have three planning meetings uh, for this. <laughs> we, in fact, we... we the only time we've ever had a planning meeting, uh, I think it's when we decided to call just for other reasons. And while we're on the phone, we talk about the next episode. Yeah. Or maybe, <laughs> That's the, very, maybe the very first discussion about, are we going to do this podcast or not? Right. Now, I still remember when we decided to finally do this. Uh, I think it was in a hotel in Pittsburgh uh, at the time. But, um, but yes, uh, we, we planned the, the program, but... Uh, yeah, we don't we don't need to do a lot of our work sitting sitting down together, and uh, we can get it done at ten o'clock at night or five in the morning or in yeah. the middle of the day or whatever works for us in whatever is the best setting. Yeah, definitely. So, so um, I want to talk about a listener question, which is sort of meta today. It's kind of a I'm going to frame it as a question about questions. That's, that's fair. It's uh, we'll get, we'll get practical before too long. So that's, sure. that's a fine place to start. Um, and we do invite listeners and viewers to, uh, to send us questions if there's something that you want 
us to answer and, and discuss. But the, the, the thing, and uh, I suggested to Jamie that we discuss in, in the vein of listener questions was a question I think we probably both get a lot. I know I do. Dear Mark, or dear Jamie, um, hopefully they don't send you an email that says, Dear Mark. Sometimes maybe people send the same question <laughs> to both of us and they do an awkward copy-paste. But people will say, you know, they'll ask, well, how does some other organization solve this problem that I have right now? And one example recently was, you know, do you have any insights for our hospital about no meeting zones, like from 8 a.m. to 10 a.m.? This was something that was popularized in the lean healthcare movement some years ago, um, you know, by Theta Care and others. But anyway, do you have any insights on this no meeting zone concept in order to have managers uh, be out at, on the Gemba coaching their employees and doing huddles because we're struggling with this. Can I get contact information from hospitals that could share their experiences with this practice? Um, so I try to give what I think are constructive, helpful answers to that. But, but, but Jamie, what, what's an example of that question that, that you might get? Yeah, I mean, I, I get everything from the, the broad version, which is, um, okay, for somebody that's in our general situation and level of maturity and lean, can you connect us to somebody that we can learn from so we can kind of, you know, go down the path together um, all the way to a specific question, which is actually better, um, at least. At least it has a, a, a clear focal point around, hey, we want to learn about biostream improvement or we want to learn about uh, – you know, A3 coaching or whatever, right? So, um, so from the broad to the specific, but it is always, um, you know, who can you connect us to to benchmark? Um, and, and for starters, which, which, which is never really a reason that I reject the request, uh, is, is it's, it's actually a lot harder than it sounds, right? Because you, you've got an inventory, uh, you know, sometimes you can just go, oh, you should talk to this guy. But most of the times you've got to inventory, you've got to look at, think about what's relevant, what's helpful. Um, most of the time those companies are busy and, and they're just not that interested in, in, in sharing and you've got to ask the right person in the right mood at the right time. Um, and it's actually a lot of work uh, relative um, and, and, and free work and that's fine, you know, but um, I, but it is, um, it's not so much the work involved because I'll always grind a little harder to get something done. It's the nature of the question that's really the problem. And I think that's why we want to talk about it. Yeah, or you know, when you talk about benchmarking, I, I sometimes get what I call the overly specific benchmarking request where somebody will say, you know, hi, we are a producer of goat cheese in Vermont and so we want to benchmark with another cheese producer in New England that's also got a left-handed CEO that's between three and five million in revenue. It isn't a re and it's like, well, okay, you, you want to look in the mirror, just look in the mirror. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's, they, they, they assume they've picked the right, I mean, every organization has an infinite number of characteristics and they've assumed that they've picked right. the right relevant five characteristics, size or fit or shape or years in the journey or whatever that might be. And, and, 
chances are you haven't picked the most relevant criteria. Yeah. Yeah. But, but the bigger problem is, is fun to me is fundamentally that, um, yeah. And, and I'm to be clear, I'm not against benchmarking. I, I think benchmarking can be done well. I think it's worth learning. Um, uh, but I, I would impo- propose there's a time and a place for it. There's a time and a place and there's a purpose, right? And, and copying the answer is not the purpose, right? And that, unfortunately that's how people go forward and say, Oh, well, we want, you know, we're, 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 we're understanding the problem right now and we have about three or four ideas, but we want to see if we can get that to nine or 10 ideas. And so we're going to round out our idea set, right? That, that starts to make sense to me, but when they start looking for a copy solution, um, it, you know, lean and management systems and operating systems and redesigning your work is about what you need it to do. Right. And, and so there's a, a, a quote from the movie Jurassic Park that came to mind on this topic that I just, I, I just lo- love. And it speaks to the problem is, this is what Jeff Goldblum says is, uh, yeah, I'm not going to try to impersonate Jeff Goldblum. That's just, I don't <laughs> have that. Kind of, I, I don't have that game, but, um, says, um, I'll tell you the problem with scientific, the scientific power you're using here. It didn't require any discipline to attain it. You read what others had done and took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourself, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew it, you had patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a lunchbox, and now here we are, right? Right. And so that's, that's that, that point around earning the knowledge is, I think, underappreciated. Uh, even with people copying Toyota, what does Toyota do? Well, I don't care what Toyota does because they've earned the knowledge about how their system works. They've earned that knowledge through experimentation and trial and study and, and, and immersion. And um, picking it up and copying and pasting it just, just never works. Yeah. So I, I think two different ways I try to answer that question, that type of question when it comes in. Um, so one is like, if I know the organization has been working with lean for a while, I'll try to politely and constructively suggest, I think you have it in, in you to figure it out yourself, to use your A3 problem solving or your PDSA mindset you know, instead of thinking like, what did some other organization do? Come back to the um, Toyota Kata question of like, what's the next experiment that you could run? Because I think, you know, there's that risk of benchmarking where people sometimes go through great expense to gather this benchmarking information. And then they, they poo-poo what they get. I said, well, but we're very different. And like, well, why, why did you go through this exercise to benchmark and then throw aside the benchmarking, you know, there's, I think sometimes no excuse. I think it's interesting that framing of, you know, it'll be better if you earn it yourself. The second way I'll answer the question is, you know, kind of saying, well, let's schedule a phone call to talk about your situation. So as a consultant, you know, if I can be helpful with somebody in a short phone, relatively short phone call, and prompt their thinking, maybe inspire them to go experiment and figure it out for themselves. That's fine. Um, you know, sometimes, you know, we might propose, can I coach you to help you figuring it out? 
and, and try to add value to an organization that way. Yeah. And, and I, I, again, there's nothing wrong with, with studying other organizations, looking for answers elsewhere. Right. But it's part of a discipline study and, you know, quite frankly, at best, you're going to be second best. Hmm. Right. And, and I'm not saying you have to be best at everything. I'm not, you know, sometimes you have a problem where it's just, all I want to do is make this go away. This is not about excellence. This is about avoiding, you know, crappy problems. But, but um, you know, if, if, if all you do, if that's your first thought, um, you'll never be best. You'll never excel as an organization because, uh, you know, what's special about you is better somewhere else. Um, and, and, and so, if you want to build an organization that gets good at making improvements, that is special because of what it does, yeah. you know, it, it's, it's, it's really not, it's, it's not even about doing something different from what other people do, but it is about that ownership and that connectivity because whatever your solution is, it's going to break, right? It's going to falter. It's going to be obsolete. And if you don't even understand why it works the way that it does, you're ill-prepared, troubleshoot, problem-solve, and improve. And, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, people want to be like Toyota. And uh, Toyota learned from Henry Ford. They learned from the Piggly Wiggly supermarket chain in the U.S. Like, I don't mean to be dismissive of learning from others, but I think there's a difference between let's say learning and being inspired right. to figure it out yourself or being inspired to take some learning and then build upon it, adopt and adapt, right? Building upon it and making it your own, I think creates that sense of ownership more so than saying, Oh, we're going to implement what Toyota did or people in healthcare would say, now oh, we're going to implement what ThetaCare did or right. point, used yeah. to do, but and I think using it to inspire your creativity, inspire your thought process. Like uh, we, we had recorded this uh, video series um, uh, with Math Tech on, on reimagining government processes uh, through the pandemic or through the tem- pandemic period. And I remember one of the examples, we talked about, you know, what if you took the DMV and you asked, uh, how would Chick-fil-A run this? Well, differently, probably, Right. Or what if you took the revenue department and asked, how would Amazon run this? Well, probably differently. And, and, and so you're, you're, you're learning from or being inspired by that thought process of another organization. Um, you're looking at an idea and saying, what does this inform us about our situation? So a learning mindset is, is paramount to effective benchmarking as opposed to a quick fix. And, and so you, you prompt me, my, my last thought on this subject. Um, a lot of times people want the overly specific looking in the mirror, benchmarking an organization exactly like them approach. Um, I have heard of um, some of you know healthcare organizations that will go and visit Japan and they very intentionally do not want to visit a Japanese hospital. They go to visit Japanese manufacturing companies that are very unlike them mm-hmm. because the theory, the, the, the principle is it's going to stretch our thinking and then we're going to have to think about what we've learned and saw and adapt it to our own needs. Where if you go and visit other hospitals, there's that risk of let's copy, right? So I've been part of trips where 
we've gone with hospitals and we've done both. We've gone to hospitals, we've gone to manufacturing companies. I can really see the argument for only going to manufacturing companies because there's that risk of when hospital people get into a Japanese hospital, they want to discuss and see the hospital-y things instead of the lean concepts. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the risk where um, maybe upon reflection, I mean, it's just interesting to, to think about like which environment really creates the most learning that, yes, I mean, I, I think you want to see one in that kind of scenario, one Japanese hospital. So you can see what's similar and what's different. That's right. part of the broadening your world perspective. But, um, and, and, and when I ran my old consulting firm uh, with, with Andy Carlino, we, you know, we, we looked at, we would get questions all the time. Well, how do you compare to this competitor and this competitor? And, and I honestly could say, I have no idea because I don't spend much time looking at what they do. Right. I look at what our customers do. I look at what our customers need and that's what we try to solve for. Um, you know, if I wanted to be like everybody else, I would have just gotten a job with one of them. Right. So um, we spent, I mean, I, I was pretty ignorant about what our competitors were doing to solve the problems because there wasn't uh, there wasn't a way to excel just by copying those answers. We had to earn, earn our solutions to our customers' problems ourselves. And then, okay, one final, final thought. Then there's the risk of benchmarking results. And I think of, um, like in next, next week through um, the work I do with Valley Capture, we're going to be publishing a, a free ebook. It's a, a PDF of um, some transcripts of speeches given by the late Paul O'Neill. And, you know, he taught, and knowing the history of what Alcoa did, they went, they learned from uh, Toyota. Mm -hmm. They had a partnership with Steve Spear and others at Harvard Business School, and they looked to other companies. But Paul O'Neill emphasized setting goals that we, what he called the theoretical limit of performance. Right. And I think the risk of benchmarking another organization's performance is that that target almost becomes a limit. Right. So mm -hmm. like, oh, well, we're, we're, you know, see, you know, organizations say we want to be in the top decile of some healthcare metric. I'm like, well, why don't you aim for perfection? And using that as an aspirational, inspirational goal, which requires a certain leadership style for people to not feel uh, beaten up, you know, proverbially uh, for, for not hitting the goal of perfection. But <laughs> I, I think that that's the one other risk about benchmarking is don't, don't just be satisfied with someone else's results. I, you were saying similar things, I think. Yeah, and, and most people, when I see them try to do that, it's, it's interesting because I remember one, one study. An organization said, well, you're going to go benchmark a, a sister factory. And function by function, they all came back with their productivity reports. But every single one of them said, uh, here's three reasons why their numbers are uh, look better than they really are. And here's three reasons why our numbers look worse than they really are. So even yeah. though they look better than us, it's really, you know, it's really a tie or we're better. They spent so much time explaining the numbers. They never really learned. From okay. I can't get off this topic. So I'm having flashbacks, PTSD to my time at General Motors, um, mm -hmm. Livonia engine plant, 1995. There were benchmarking studies looking at the productivity metric of hours per engine. And the plant I was in, our hours per engine was really high, meaning it was bad mm -hmm. compared to a Ford plant and a Toyota plant. 
And so they, they, they thought the, the Ford plant was the apples to apples comparison, similar products, similar technology, similar, okay, it was Detroit automaker. And I figured, well, the point of benchmarking is to identify the gap so we can close the gap. What I hated is I was being asked as an industrial engineer to explain the gap, to rationalize the gap. Like, oh, well, their volume is higher, so therefore their productivity has to be better. And I'm, right. this is not what I want to do in my career. No, just no, just explaining away the differences. Yep, that's that's uh, right out of a Dilbert cartoon for sure. <laughs> uh, it was. So. Well, that's how we got where we are today with with some of those companies for sure. So, well, seeing uh, that led me to MIT, and that led to all kinds of other good things. <laughs> if I've been too happy and comfortable at GM, yep, I can't imagine you still there. That's that's for sure. All right, so we'll wrap that up. All right, cool. Good discussion. So, um, you know, I was kind of wrap up um, with kind of a random question, non-lean related question. So, uh, so this time uh, the question is, what are you reading right now? Jamie, if you want to go first. Yeah, so, so uh, let, me, let me start, start by saying um, that, uh, you know, I used to do, I don't know, 80% of my reading on planes. Um, that's where I got my reading done. And I really, I really had to adjust. Uh, my reading dropped, uh, and, um, been, been picking it back up by changing my system of work because it broke. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I'll share two books. One, I I recently just finished a a book. Um, I always have a couple going at a time, depending on my mood on topic, but, uh, finished the book, the invincible company. Uh, which is in the same series as the business model canvas kind of strategy uh, series. Um, okay. Book, not, not great. I think if you're deep into business model canvas work, it's a, it's a good library of some ideas. Um, uh, but I'm not sure I, I learned a lot from it. Um, but the book I'm into now, uh, uh, I, I love, I love really going deep into history uh, in, in, in various little veins and I don't think I have a particular genre of history that I, I like. Just I love history. So I'm reading a book called The Map of Knowledge. And it, it traces how knowledge evolved from society to society, from person to person, from city to city, right? Because society wasn't just empires. It was also heavily based on cities. Um, really starts in, you know, uh, I don't know exactly what year, year 500, uh, goes, you know, past the year 1000. Uh, but that's the kind of era that it's talking about where, you know, you're, and they, they spent a lot of time tracing specific knowledge from the Greeks uh, forward and seeing who translated copies of books and, and who advanced them and built on them and what books were used for centuries and, and why, what, what about the conditions uh, made it ripe for, knowledge to create. So it covers, each chapter is a different city and a different time, it kind of has what was the epicenter of knowledge of the world. Uh, and uh, so it covered Baghdad, uh, Cordoba, to, I'm in the uh, reading about Toledo right now. It's done that chapter. Toledo, and, Ohio? No, no. <laughs> uh, in, in Spain, um, kind of a, it followed along Cordoba after Cordoba was conquered. No, no um, offense to listeners from Toledo. I was no. Curious. Um, 
<laughs> but 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 I think it's fair to say it wasn't the uh, uh, it's not the center of knowledge of the of the of the world right uh, right now or ever. So. Um, and, and and now a, a word from our sponsor, the Toledo Chamber of Commerce. Ah, dang it! Yeah, probably not. Another Toledo Mudhens. Uh, Mudheads don't exist anymore either. So I don't think they do. But um, you know, what's interesting is how much some of this was run by kingdoms. Uh, some of this was run by by private libraries. Um, it, it really was, especially in the, the readings about Baghdad. Um, you know. Today, I don't know about today, but, you know, you have a Ferrari and that's your sign of wealth or a Aston Martin or a second home in Greece or whatever it is, right? Whatever the status symbol is. Back then, it was having a library and mm-hmm. inviting scholars to your private library to study. Mm-hmm. That was that was the status symbol. And what a great status symbol, right? Uh, it really definitely led to the advance, both the preservation and the advancement of knowledge. And uh, uh, yeah, it's a really, it's, it's, it's not the easiest book to read. I kind of get the sense that it's an extension of someone's PhD thesis, but, yeah. um, but the content is fascinating and really enjoying the map of knowledge. So what are you, what are you reading um, these days? Well, cool. So in a roundabout way, um, I'll tell you about a different book I've been reading about um, history. So, um, you know, in some of my own kind of, you know, explorations and reflection of, um, you know, kind of current societal topics, or at least current discussion of longstanding topics, um, I had started reading uh, the book, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And um, I was reading it, and I was, I was, I was, it was interesting, but I was kind of thinking this question of, um, like, some of the history of like, you know, where, where do um, some of these structures or racist thoughts or systems uh, come from? And so I Googled, I think I just literally typed as people do in the Google, what is the history of racism? And sure enough, a different book by Ibram X. Kendry, um, Kendi, sorry. Um, uh, his previous book before How to Be an Anti-Racist was called Stamped from the Beginning. So um, it's not light reading. It's an important topic, but it goes back through, um, dates back to uh, the, the, the fifth, late 1500s, okay. pre-American history. Sure. Um, but it, it, like different chapters focus on different figures in American history. So uh, Cotton Mather, who you might remember from U.S. history class of kind of early um, colonial uh, preachers and religious figures. And then I'm currently into the section now that's uh, exploring Thomas Jefferson. Okay. So kind of moving from um, the secular realm to the, the non-secular governmental political realm. Um, so I'm going to continue reading that. It's, 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 it's kind of heavy, but it, it, it helps scratch that itch of saying, well, how did we get to where we are today? Not an overnight problem. Uh, again, mm-hmm. no overnight solutions to it, but I think understanding um, that history has been has been eye opening and interesting. So I definitely recommend that book. I, I hear that one talked about far less than his more recent book, How to Be an Anti Racist. So again, that yeah. other book is uh, stamped from the beginning. Excellent. And and uh, yeah, actually, interestingly, my my wife is reading uh, How to Be an Anti Racist. Um, uh, he he came and sp- I, I think if I remember correctly, he came and spoke at Lehigh, where both my wife mm-hmm. and I went. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, last year. Um, 
and and I don't know if she ended up with a copy or just familiar familiar with his work. And so she's she's reading that, and uh, you know I hope to to read it when she's done. Um, so uh, yeah, very interesting topic, and I, I think we won't go into the topic now as we wrap up, but right. uh, not being racist and being anti racist. Um, are, are two different things. And I think that's the whole point of, of the, of the well, book. I think, you know, one, one is passive saying, well, I don't say or do overtly racist things, but that's different than taking actions um, to help improve society for, for all. Exactly. And I think uh, I, I really hope to, to look at your, your, your blog in the coming week with that particular premise in mind. Um, yeah. Of, of what, you know, what I can learn and what I can do. Um, even if I, even if I do it poorly or do it not enough, uh, I want to do it better and, and uh, great opportunity to learn. So learning, reflecting and growing and, you know, and some of the, you know, the conversations I've, I've had um, recently on this topic with, with black colleagues, um, you know, this idea of leaning into the discomfort. Mm-hmm. We grow through discomfort. A lot of times we feel discomfort and we back away. And, um, you know, as I, I actually earlier interviewed um, a, a black woman who's a healthcare executive. This is for the Habitual Excellence um, podcast through Value Capture. And she said, basically, you know, she was um, like, you know, the, the discomfort you and I, Jamie, might feel reading about and thinking about and talking about these topics, that's nothing compared to the discomfort that some people in this country face every day and right. feel every day. So yep. just driving down the street and I'll, um, I know we're kind of back into the topic, but it's hard not to be. No, um, so I'll, I'll, I saw a post by, by Randy Pinkett that we talked about earlier. Uh, he did a, a great video on the myths of, of racism mm-hmm. and uh, he actually finished with one, that that's a key point I've always made from a lean perspective, which is you can't learn inside your comfort zone, right? So you have to get outside your comfort zone in order to learn. If you're inside your comfort zone, that's the stuff you already know. And, and this was kind of his ending point was if this is uncomfortable, that's good. That's okay. Because that's the only way that we learn and grow. And um, yeah, that's the point of any book, right? Since we're finishing on books here. Um, and it's the point of lean because lean is all about learning. So mm-hmm. uh, I, I think this all this all starts to connect. And and uh, if if we're not about continuous improvement about ourselves, we can't be about continuous improvement of other people and other organizations. True. So we can think about an ideal state or a target condition, but then the next question is, what's the next experiment that we can run personally or as an organization? And see if that makes makes things at least takes us a step toward that ideal condition. We will actively aspire. Yeah. So, all right. Um, fun as always, Jamie. Good discussions. You know, heavy topics at times, but you know, um, always enjoy talking to you, and, and hopefully, people uh, enjoy listening. Um, so, you know, we do want to give a few reminders as we wrap up here. Um, if you want to check out um, all episodes, um, you can go to leanwhiskey.com. You can spell whiskey, K-E-Y at the end or K-Y at the end. Both of those forward to a page on my, my website. And then you can also go to Jamie's website. at Yep, which is jflinch.com slash leanwhiskey. And you know, we, we ask you, I mean, if you're listening 
If you're watching us on YouTube and you want to subscribe as a podcast, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, um, other other places. Um, if you are listening, we're doing these as video podcasts. I think this is a new habit and a new standard, right? It, it certainly seems to be a new standard because, uh, you know, why not? We're on video anyway, so we can see each other. So uh, it's been, been a, I think it's worked. Yeah. So you can find us on, on YouTube. Um, they're currently, they've all been on my channel. We've got a, we'll, we'll talk offline, Jamie, if we're going to put some of these on your YouTube channel. Yeah. People know how to find us one way or the other. So. Sure. And go check out Jamie's videos. You mentioned earlier, you know, if people go search for Jay Flinch on YouTube. Yeah, Jay Flinch or my name, either way, they'll they'll find my channel. And um, you know, whether whether it's YouTube or or Spotify or Google Play or Apple, whatever you listen or watch, um, please please subscribe. Um, you know, so you find out when we release new stuff. Uh rate us, review us. Um you know, it, it helps, it helps us. It helps other listeners find us. Um, uh, we really do appreciate that. Uh, it, it, it's not just, uh, uh, it's not an ego trip. It, it really does kind of help people find content that, 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 that might benefit them or that they might enjoy. And so, you know, we do, we do, uh, uh we don't have any targets for how many people we want to reach, uh, but we love sharing with people, uh, that's in both of our natures. And uh, uh, please help us do that. Even if you just tell a friend, um, tell a friend. Always, always appreciate the help. And if you're watching on YouTube, the, the thing I'm supposed to do is to point down. I don't know if I'm pointing at the right place. But um, uh, maybe can, I have to do it over here. You can subscribe and also turn on um, notifications. I think notifications might be up there or something. Uh, that notifications is down. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah. So. Notifications are great. And, um, yeah, and you'll you know their next episode is going to actually be uh, live, uh, not not for our listeners, but with the Colorado Lean Network. Um, our so our next uh, episode will be uh, for for attendees of the conference. We will do a, a, an episode live with those attendees and a couple of co-hosts from the Colorado Lean Network. And then, as always, we'll we'll share that um, uh, share that episode through the regular channels that we just talked about. Well, and I think I think this is actually happening before the Colorado Lean Network episode. I'm going to be recording uh, a podcast uh, with with a guy you know, Cliff Hazel, who's actually in uh, Sweden. So we're going to be recording it some weekend where I think it's tep- I think it's going to be noon for me and relatively late evening uh, for him. Um, so tough, Cliff, tough I met, match. Cliff, I met at the Lean Coaching Summit um, a couple of years ago. He was in Austin. Uh, we had a drink together with our mutual friend, Jim Benson. So that's kind of the criteria, right? If we've talked lean over whiskey with someone in person, they can come on the podcast, right? Yep. I think that's about right. Yeah. So I um, hope people look forward to those other episodes. Uh, Jamie, I'd poured you know another half ounce. I saved another sip. I hope people aren't watching. Like Mark took more sips than Jamie. That's, that's I don't it. think, I don't think, I don't think that's the conclusion they would have reached. I, <laughs> But I had some pretty hefty pours and I'm still, I'm about to finish my second. So, okay. so anyway, I saved enough to, uh, to toast. Cheers, Jamie. Thanks a lot. Cheers.